0: Evening, Red Oak. Man, does anybody else feel like it was summer today? Yeah? Like 65 degrees in December, the day after uh, Christmas. It made me, uh, made me think about uh, this past summer in May. Um, me and my family got to go on vacation. We usually go to the beach, uh, but this time we went to Ludlow, Kentucky. Anybody ever been to Ludlow? Very tiny little town on the Ohio River. Um, and, uh, and the reason we went there was because um, very close to Ludlow is where the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter are. Um, and so uh, you're going to see a picture of the uh, the Ark on the screen. Um and, uh, and this place is absolutely fascinating. We spent uh, two days at the Creation Museum. We spent one day at the Ark Encounter, um, and you could have spent a week there. I mean, we, we flew through it, um, and we were inside of the Ark probably for like four hours, just walking around, reading, um, looking at all the exhibits. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. It's staggering how big it is in person, um, and so um, they put, uh, they didn't, they, they spared no expense when it came to like the detail and the, the specifics of things. Um, it was truly remarkable. Uh, one of the things I appreciated about uh, that place was that uh, as you were walking through, looking at all the exhibits, um, there was this one section, there was an entire room um, and it, it was full of all of these Noah's Ark books and pictures and fluffy stuffed animals and, and stuff like that. It was really cute. Um, and because and you've probably seen those books before. You've seen pictures of um, where they make Noah's Ark and the flood look like a cute little kid story. Um, and they called that room the fairy tale ark exhibit. This is what they said at the beginning of the room. They said fairy tale ark stories often focus on cute animals. And a fun boat ride. But the flood account is about the righteous and holy God judging an exceedingly sinful world with a cataclysmic flood while showing mercy to Noah's family and the animals. So, the point they were trying to teach, and what we need to teach our kids and some adults, is that this is actual truth, that this is fact, this is not a myth, this actually happened, right? Um, and because the whole chapter, Verse, chapter 6 is really about divine judgment. It's not, it's not a fun and, and cute story, right? Um, it's, it's actually terrifying if you think about it. We're going we're to talk about that in a, uh, in a little bit. But um, we're going to cover verses 9 through 22 in chapter 6 tonight. I'm really thankful that, that Spencer preached the first eight verses of this chapter because they're a doozy, right? Last week was pretty great. Um, and, uh, and so while it was um, kind of mysterious um, it was also humbling, right? Uh, because we also see God's grace at the very end in verse 8. And so we can't jump into verse 9 without understanding the context of what's going on. It's hard for us to to really wrap our minds around um, the concept of how dreadful sin is to a holy God. Sin has increased in the hearts of humanity, ravished the earth so much that God had resolved to blot them out. So the world was full of sin. The Lord is grieved because of that sin. He's going to pour out his judgment on the earth. But even in the midst of that, of God's perfect judgment, he demonstrates loving kindness and grace towards Noah, right? Verse 8 precedes our passage tonight. It's a really good on-ramp as we launch into verse 9, where God says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All right, so, so we see that there is grace here right before verse 9. is super important. Okay? And so some of the major themes, just keep this in mind, divine judgment, divine grace, and how we are to walk with God. That's, that's what we're going to see in this passage. Let's pray before we read God's holy word. Father, we praise you tonight because you are holy. We, we praise you and acknowledge that you are a God of justice, and you are a God of grace, and we acknowledge our sinfulness to you tonight, and we confess that we need you. I know I need you, and we ask, Lord, right now that you would show us the same grace, the same favor that you showed to Noah. Lord, right now that you would turn our hearts towards you, not towards prideful gain and knowledge that would puff up Lord, but I pray that you would humble us, soften our hearts, open up the, the ears and the eyes of the people in this room and the people who will, who will listen later or who are watching online. I pray, Father, that your word would go forth and that you would do what only you can do with it. We need you to work, Holy Spirit, and we trust you will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Starting in verse 9, this, this is God's word. These are the generations of Noah, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So this is the beginning of another Toledot, the the third one, right, the generations of Noah. Noah's mentioned 50 times in nine parts of the Bible. So if you remember, Noah is Methuselah's grandson. Enoch was Noah's great-grandfather. If you remember back in Genesis 5, we learned Noah's father was Lamech out of the line of Seth. So Noah received a special blessing from his father, and this is what it said, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So for Lamech, the hope was that Noah would bring comfort out of the curse. And Noah did live different, right? In our passage tonight, it says God characterized him as righteous, blameless, and walking with him. And that, that's pretty massive if, if that's how God describes you right? It's important for us to note that grace precedes righteousness. Look at the grace of God in verse 8 before you read verse 9, right? Because some of you could say, like, when you read verse 9, it says, how in the world could God say that Noah was righteous? Because we know he wasn't perfect, right? And we know he seems like his life wasn't blameless, but yet God says he's righteous and he's blameless. Right, but it's all because of the grace of God. You you can't have righteousness apart from God's grace. That's why we were singing about being justified by God's grace. We are righteous in His sight because of grace. Right. So this is the the first time in the Bible that the word righteous is actually used. And so righteousness it needs to be defined. Right. It's not it's not the only word translated in the Hebrew. Some versions say perfect or just. Noah was a godly man. Right. God describes Noah as righteous and blameless before him. In Hebrews 11:7, it says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah feared the Lord. Noah lived by faith, not by sight. So righteous implies Noah's standing before God, while blameless implies his conduct. God describes Noah as blameless, and that doesn't mean that he was perfect. It actually refers to his moral conduct. He was a man of integrity, a a wholehearted man, if you will. It says that he was righteous and blameless in his generation. Um, We already know from Genesis 6-5 that Noah's generation was wicked and evil. So this man of faith, he stood out in sharp contrast to the people of his generation and all of the corruption and all of the violence that was all around him. And in that last sentence in verse 9, it says that Noah walked with God. And, and there's a, a good parallel between Enoch and Noah here. They both walked with the Lord. They both preached judgment was coming. Second Peter 2.5 says, if we did not spare, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So Noah preached against ungodliness. And maybe you have some of the characteristics of your father or your grandfather. Well, Noah did. Even if they they were passed away before you were born, you might have some characteristics from those in your family, right? You share the same blood, right? You came from the same family tree. And sometimes we want to model our lives after our fathers or our grandfathers if they were a good example to us. Surely, Methuselah and Lamech had told Noah of his great-grandpa. Enoch, who walked with God. To walk with God means that you, first and foremost, have faith in God. You believe and trust in him, and you listen and obey his word. For followers of Jesus, our daily obedience and surrender to the lordship of Jesus and his word powerfully demonstrate the reality of our faith. We have a lived faith. We're actually living it out. So if you're walking with the Lord, and you're in constant communication with him through prayer, then you will not want to grieve the Lord by conforming to the pattern of this world. But instead, you'll listen to him and submit to his word and and obey his word. So Noah's world was even more corrupt and violent than ours is today. Look at verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So in these two verses, God saw the earth And there was much corruption in it. When something's repeated in the Bible, we know it's there for for emphasis, right? And when something's repeated twice, it's super important. But when something's repeated three times, God's like, don't miss this. This is huge, right? He describes Noah's generation with the word corrupt three times in two verses. So corrupt means ruined or perverted or spoiled. Basically, all the people on the earth, except for Noah, lived as if God did not exist. They had no regard for him, and they did not desire to know him or to live for him or to walk with him. So everyone on the earth had turned away from God and corrupted themselves. Listen to how the first four verses of Psalm 14 puts this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there were any who would understand, any who seek the Lord. They have all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord. So Noah was the only remnant from Cessline who called upon the name of the Lord. In verses 9 through 12, it sets up this beautiful contrast of righteousness versus wickedness. And now in the remaining verses in our passage, we're going to see that God gives instructions to Noah, starting in verse 13. God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So when you walk with God, he speaks to you. He gives you instructions. He leads you. He guides you. And God said, the same phrase found in verse 11, the earth was filled with violence, right? The Hebrew for violence is, is shak, shak, shamak, which implies wrong or violent cruelty, unrighteousness, or injustice. So the violence, the, the unrighteousness, the injustice of Cain has spread throughout the entire, entire earth rapidly, right? So God says, I'm gonna, I've determined I will destroy the earth. So his wrath is promised over sin. This is a declaration of global divine judgment. One truth we can learn from this passage is that corruption always leads to destruction. Corruption always leads to destruction. In verses 13 through 21, we see how active God is in his world, right? God speaks. God gives instructions, God promises judgment, God shows mercy, God's gracious, God keeps his word, all of his promises come true. It's very interesting to note that Noah doesn't speak in this chapter. Only God is speaking. God's the one who's speaking, God's the one who's acting, because God is the main character here, right? Moses was making sure to tell the people of Israel, God is the one who's doing these things, Okay, let's see how God gives instructions for the ark. Look at verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. So the word ark in the Hebrew is tabach. And it only is used 28 times in the Bible and it refers to the vessel. It only refers to two things it refers to the vessel which Noah was to build and the basket that Moses was placed in as a baby. Those are the only times that this word is used in the Bible. So the Hebrew word literally means box. Okay? So don't think boat, think box, right? Rectangular box. Okay, so this wasn't a boat. It wasn't a ship. It wasn't meant to be propelled through the water. So there's no propeller. There's no oars, right? There was no sails. Why? Because there was no need for a captain. There was no need for navigation. It was just to survive. This box was just for floating, Right? Because they were simply trusting that God would lead, guide, and protect them through his judgment. So, how often do we try to be the captain of the box of our own life? I know I do. Right? We we throw up ourselves, we we try to paddle our way through life instead of trusting in the Lord. We might say, not out loud, of course, but we might say with our actions, God, I've I've got this. I can do it. When in reality, we don't. Instead, we should say, Father, I can't, but you can. I can't, but you can. So Noah knew that only God could save him. Only God could save his family. Noah was was used by God to save humanity, much like Moses was used to save Israel. God preserved both of them from water by a box. We must remember that the ark wasn't Noah's idea. It was God's idea, and it was God's design, just like salvation. God's idea, God's design. Verse 14 tells us that the ark was made out of gopher wood, and now we have absolutely no clue what gopher wood is. It could have been cypress. It could have been cedar. We just don't know, right? The pitch, it it, it was probably like caulk that you get from Lowe's or Home Depot, something like that. Um, It held the wood together, right? If you think about it, I think this is fascinating. They didn't have a hardware store. They didn't have Ace, right? They didn't have Lowe's. They didn't have Home Depot, right? They didn't have Cox Building Supply, right? But when you read the dimensions of the ark, it's staggering. Absolutely, depending on who you're talking to and which measurements they use, whether it was Babylonians or, or Hebrews or Egyptians, they all d- use cubits, and they all, some of them used different measurements. Some of them, their cubits were 17 inches. Some of them were 18. Some of them were 20, right? And so this one, um, relatively, was about 510 feet long, okay? Anybody been to an NFL football game? That's that football field and then half of another football field. That's how big that, that box was. 85 feet wide, 51 feet tall. If you stood it straight up, then it would be 150 feet taller than The Statue of Liberty. I wonder if they like used any, like maybe a shiny new steel or a Husqvarna or maybe like a nice John Deere to like haul the logs. Maybe they threw them in the back of a Toyota pickup truck. Right? If you think about it, like they had no trucks. They had no chainsaws. Right? They had no heavy machinery to haul the lumber. But most likely, they used the tools that Cain's descendants created. So God used tools crafted by sinful men in the hands of Noah and his sons to build a vessel to rescue his people. He uses people who are not perfect to accomplish his perfect means and plan. There's a few different views of how long it took to build the ark. Some say it was 75 years, some say 120 some say a hundred years. Either way, it took a really long time, right? And this was a a massive vessel. Some say that it is the largest floating vessel ever created until the 19th century when there was actually steel made to use and to make boats. No one would, would just decide to build something as big as the ark on a landlocked area. No one would have imagined it. Only God if, if only if God told somebody to do it, would they have done something like this. No one would have even come up with the concept of building something this massive. Right? And it wasn't like Noah was an expert maritime ship builder, right? right? He didn't work for the Navy. Yet, the dimensions of the ark were perfect for stability, according to naval architecture today. In his article, Noah's Ark, Fact or Fiction, Ross Abazzolo says this, the ark was built on a six to one ratio, 300 cubits to 50 cubits wide, which experts say is the most stable ratio of any vessel. Naval architects have concluded that the ark could easily have survived even the largest, most powerful ocean waves, which would be unable to capsize or overturn it. It was not a tiny vessel. Rather, it was large, very stable ship, totally capable of holding the animals God instructed Noah to take on board with him. So God was the one providing the way of escape from the coming judgment. was it Noah. Right? Many people point to, to the door in the ark as, as being symbolic for Jesus, as the one door that we must enter into for salvation. And while that is true, right, Jesus is the only way, truth, and the life— no one comes to the father except through him we need to enter in through jesus right but jesus isn't just the door he's actually the entire ark by which we enter in and are protected from the wrath of god coming through his judgment and exiting on the other side into a new creation so let's look at at the divine initiative taken by god to exercise his divine judgment in verse 17 he says, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. You can see how this is not a cute little kid story. The word flood here is unique and it doesn't appear anywhere else. It's isolated only for this event. So this is a deluge like no other. A worldwide flood, not just a local flood. Right? This is a global judgment. Now, some skeptics will say that it was a local flood. They don't believe that it was a worldwide flood. And, and God used the rainbow later as a sign of his promise that he wouldn't um, destroy the entire earth again with the flood. Right? If the flood in Noah's day was merely isolated to a certain region rather than being global, then with every local flood, the Lord would have broken his promise. And by saying he would never flood the earth again. So in in rebuttal to those people who claim that the flood wasn't global, scientists know that the earth hasn't always looked like it does now. The the wicked pre-flood world consisted of a supercontinent, but was destroyed and broken up so that seven continents rise from the waters. These continents are covered with layers of fossil-filled sediment deposited by water, testifying of the global nature of the flood. That's why you can find fish fossils at the tops of mountains. Why would God say, I will destroy all things and everything must die if he wasn't going to destroy the whole world? And why would he say that in general? Because the penalty of sin, rebellion against the holy God, is death. This is divine judgment. It's clear, it's horrific, and it grieved God's heart to see the sin increase upon the world. But God's not a God of wrath only, but of mercy. Look at verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you will come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So God has mercy on Noah. He establishes a covenant with him. The word covenant in Hebrew is bereth. This is not a two-way street, right? This is, this is unilateral. God is saying, I will do this. I will establish this. I will uphold this. I will pursue you. Pursue you. I will preserve you. I will have mercy on you. Right, so God's covenant with Noah is God saving Noah, not because of anything Noah has done. It's not because of what he had done. It's all because of God. Remember back in verse eight, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, right? That's God sovereignly showing grace to Noah. And we all know that grace is unmerited favor. It's unearned favor. It's something we do not deserve. So because of God's grace towards Noah, he considers him righteous, justified by grace alone. Noah was blameless, sanctified in his generation, and this was God's work in Noah's life. Even in the midst of a corrupt and crooked and violent world that deserved God's holy and just wrath to be poured out on it, God shows mercy and grace towards Noah and his family. Him and his sons and, his, and their wives were included under the protection of this covenant. 1 Peter 3.20 says this, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So only God could save. Only God could protect. Only God could provide. Only God could rescue people from his wrath. Only God could keep a covenant. Look at verse 19. God continues to give Noah instructions. He says, Of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you and keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. So it's important to remember that these animals didn't have to be fully grown adults, right? Uh, So it's not like you're going to have a a massive giraffe with a 40-foot neck. You don't have to have that on the ark, okay? So to get a visual understanding of the ark's capacity, since we can't really think about cubits and what that looks like, uh, 447 tractor trailers could fit inside of it. 447. Think about that next time you're riding down the interstate and you see one. The ark would have enclosed or nearly housed 7,000 animals, It's estimated that 85% of the animals weighed 22 pounds or less. 7% of them weighed 22 to 220 pounds and only 8% of the animals weighed over 220 pounds. So one of the exhibits at the Ark Encounter um, that Answers in Genesis built said this. Current estimates from the Ark Encounter researchers placed 1,398 animal kinds on board the Ark. Each of these animal kinds and their basic needs, such as food, water, and waste disposal, has been accounted for in the layout of the three decks of the Ark. So God gave very specific instructions to Noah along with his sons, and they carried it out, right? Look at verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So let's not miss the importance of this verse, right? It's simple, but it's powerful. Noah was obedient. It simply says that after God spoke, after God gave him instructions, Noah did it. He did it all, right? Remember we learned that Noah walked with God from verse 9? Well, Noah walked with God and his walk turned into work. Don't get those two mixed up, right? The walk versus the work, if you put work first, then you have a works-based righteousness and might think that if you live a good life and follow all the rules and, and listen and obey, then you will earn a relationship with God. But that's not the gospel. The walk always precedes the work. Noah walked with God by faith in his intimate relationship with the Lord. He listened and obeyed and that turned in to work. All right? The walk leads to the work. Noah listened to God's word and he obeyed it. When Allie and I were raising Titus in case when they were real little, we would try to repeat this often and then we'd say, How do you listen and obey? How do you listen and obey? We would always ask that, and they would say, right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. Right? Right away, all the way and with a happy heart. And we get them to repeat it to us. Right? When mommy or daddy asked you to, to do something, you need to listen and obey. And how do you listen and obey? Right away all the way, and with a happy heart. This is how Noah obeyed. If only we would, would reply in the very same way when we read God's Word, when we know that the Spirit is prompting us to speak or to move or to go. So a few questions in closing. Are you, are you trying to work so hard for God that you aren't walking with God? Or maybe you're walking with God, but you aren't listening and obeying his word? Are you obeying the commands of the Lord? You're going to see five uh, questions on the screen. And and in closing, these, these five questions, I think, are some of the best questions you can ask when you're studying any passage of scripture, right? What does this text teach me about God, man, Jesus? What does God want me to know, and what does God want me to do, right? And so, I'm gonna answer each of these questions in relation to this passage, and we're gonna close. So what does this text teach me about God? That he's holy, he's a God of perfect justice, wrath, mercy, and grace, and that he's patient, but sin grieves his heart and must be punished. What does this text teach me about man? That we're sinful, corrupt, violent, and deserving of God's holy and just wrath. What does this text teach me about Jesus? That Jesus is a better Noah. Noah was saved physically by the ark, but the ark couldn't save Noah from sin in his own heart. He would get off the ark, and sin would still reign because he wasn't perfect. There's only one who's perfectly righteous, blameless, and holy in and of himself. Where Noah failed, Jesus succeeds. Noah obeyed temporarily, but Jesus obeyed fully. Jesus was also the better ark. Professor of theology Brandon Smith said this, While a wooden ark delivered Noah from physical death, a wooden cross delivers us from spiritual death. Just as Noah obeyed God by climbing onto a boat to save a few, Jesus obeyed his Father by climbing onto a cross to save many. What does God want me to know because of this passage? That his divine judgment is real, that his grace is sufficient that he is a covenant-keeping God, and that he keeps his promises, that sin grieves his heart, and we must give an account for it. Jesus came to save the first time. The next time that he comes, he comes to bring judgment. In Matthew 24, it says, But as in the days of Noah, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will this, the coming of the Son of Man be. So Jesus' return will be just as sudden as the flood was. He will return in judgment. And you have noticed from that passage how everybody was continuing to live their life and they were fa- thinking about life just on an earthly level, they were not thinking about the next. They were only thinking about themselves, they were living for themselves, and they only were thinking about eating, drinking, marrying, right, and enjoying themselves. They weren't thinking about eternity, they weren't thinking about God, they weren't thinking about judgment, and they were not thinking about the next life. What does God want me to do? Simply repent, trust the Lord, fear the Lord. Live by faith. Walk with the Lord. Listen and obey his word. The only way to not get swept away is to trust in Jesus alone. I'm going to close a little different tonight. I want everybody to focus on these words. I'm going to read a quote, and if it would help you to focus, close your eyes and listen to this. It's not a short quote, but this is how we're going to finish the evening. This is a quote from Martin Lord Jones in his book, The Gospel in Genesis. Close your eyes and listen to these words. The ark saved Noah from the waters of the flood. Even so, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and being in him will save us from the wrath to come at the final day of judgment of the whole world. Christ is the ark. Christ is the savior. Christ is the refuge. God has built his own ark for us, and we only have to enter in by faith. We shall be safe when the world is burning and melting and all that is opposed to God is destroyed everlasting out of his sight. It all comes to this. We must believe God. If you believe God now, the grace of God will deliver and save you. And what God says is just this. Our sinfulness deserves the very selfsame punishment that he meted out to those people in the flood and will met out at the end of the world. He pronounces judgment upon sin in every shape and form, and we are all sinners before him. There is just one way of escape, to believe that, to acknowledge it, to stop defending yourself, to stop trying to argue against it with your science or your knowledge or anything else. It is to believe the simple word of God, as Noah did the word about yourself, that you are a sinner, to confess it and acknowledge it, to repent before God. Then believe him further when he tells you that he has prepared the ark, that he sent his only begotten son to bear your sins and their punishment. If you believe that and enter into him, your sins will be blotted out and you will be safe in life and safe in death and safe through all eternity. Let's pray. Father God, pray that you would open up our eyes to the message of the flood. We need you. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We cannot save ourselves. Would you grant faith and repentance? We trust you. We fear you. May we live by faith day by day. May we walk by faith day by day. May we listen and obey your word day by day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.